Thanks for the kind invitation. Thanks for this nice introduction. I had only one disappointment when you said between hammer and I thought it would be between hammer and sickle or whatever. As an old leftist, no. Also, uh, the only thing that disturbed me in this kind of introduction is all the, 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 the one of the most provocative things and so on. Like it's very difficult for me to identify myself to that with that. Like you construct a certain place, and I was almost tempted to look back, like, who is the guy? <laughs> now, it's nice that you mentioned that wound, because I think that you now generated that wound in me, the wound of humanity, because that, that wound is the gap between me in my immediate stupidity and that image of me, like, who is that uh, inventive thinker and so on. Of course, we in psychoanalysis have a name for this wound, no? It's called... Symbolic castration. So thanks for a castrating <laughs> experience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So now, okay. Enough of jokes. I already uh, warned uh, people that uh, I tend to speak too long, so I will simply go on trying to read your body language, you know, and, uh, or some gentle hints. Okay. Since this is visual arts and so on department, let me begin with. <clears throat> two recent Hollywood productions which were released to mark the fifth anniversary of September 11th. Paul Greengrass's United 93 <coughs> sorry, and Oliver Stone's World Trade Center. Now, the first thing that strikes the eye is that both films try to be as anti-Hollywood as possible. Both focus on the courage of ordinary people. No glamorous stars, no special effects, no big heroic gestures, just, as I, they put it, a terse realistic depiction of ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. However, I claim this very touch of authenticity raises some disturbing questions. The first thing that one cannot but note is how both films tell the story of an exception. United 93 is about the only one of the four kidnapped planes in which the terrorists failed, which did hit its destination. World Trade Center tells the story of the two of those 20 or so policemen, firemen who were saved from the ruins. The disaster is thus turned into a kind of triumph, most notably in United 93, where the passengers revolted. Now, a comparison with Spielberg's Schindler's List is instructive here. Although I consider Schindler's List a total artistic and political failure, nonetheless, I think that the idea to choose Schindler, ah, why a failure? We can, I shouldn't get lost in this, but we can debate this later. I think that uh, uh, the problem is that Spielberg has one underlying fundamental motive which he repeats through practically all of his films is this obsession with father, a failed father who ultimately recaptures, regains his proper paternal authority. Uh, take the one before the last one, War, War of the Worlds. It's clearly, it's not really about aliens, it's about Tom Cruise developing into a proper father. And this gives us a key to practically all of them, I claim. Uh, uh, Jurassic Park is really about Sam Neill, bad father, dismissing the two small kids, authority, Schindler's List. It's clearly, it's about Schindler, 
turning from exploit uh, from the one who financially exploits sees the opportunity to exploit Jews to turning into their paternal protector, even E.T., I claim. What happens really in E.T.? Remember that in the first scene you learn that the family is, uh, that the father abandoned the family. This is absolutely crucial. So, uh, E.T. is for me just a kind of a vanishing mediator. Remember the last scene where finally that Yoda-esque creep called E.T. goes home. You, do you remember that all the scientists are bad? The one who is the good one already, check it up, has his hands over the mother's shoulders. So, again, paternal authority, family is reestablished, and so on, and so on. So, in spite of all these problems, and there are other mega problems, uh, for example, no, 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 we will have time. Now, let's do it properly. Uh, like, for me, uh, the lowest point of Schindler's list is that uh, Spielberg couldn't, wasn't able to resist the temptation to depict the very point when Schindler, like, discovers his mission, turns into a good father. You remember that famous, for me, I'm sorry to tell you, too kitschy scene when he's on that small hill above the Krakow ghetto, on a horse in the morning ride, sees, he sees, observes the German units, SS units, special units, uh, penetrating uh, the ghetto, and that famous, uh, in a black and white film, the small girl in red, and so on, and that you see. For me, uh, it's something, now I will talk, radical atheist, almost in theological terms, this kind of conversions in good, in evil, they should remain a mystery at some level. There is something obscene, blasphemous for me in depicting them too. You know, it's as if, uh, as if Spielberg here makes one step into a direction of which the lowest point is maybe, did you see with Ed Harris Pollock? It's not a totally bad film, but one scene, death penalty for me. Namely, do you remember how they couldn't resist depicting the moment when this, uh, action painting is discovered. Of course, it's the usual stupidity, like a uh, uh, kind of a bottle of color, totally dungeon, Ed, Ed Harris, Pollock, uh, 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 hits it, it turns over, and then, oh, he discovered, ah, that's it. Like, uh, they couldn't resist it. That's obsessed. But nonetheless, back to Schindler's list, something he did there is correct. What? The way he there focused on an exception, why? I think that it is precisely by presenting a German who did something to help the Jews that you get over the implication that it was possible to do something and thus effectively to condemn those who did nothing, claiming it was totalitarian regime, nothing could have been done. So Spielberg, I think, was correct there to focus on exception. In United 93, I claim, on the contrary, the focus on the rebellion serves the purpose of, of precisely preventing us to ask this truly pertinent question. That is to say, let me indulge in a simple mental experiment. Let me imagine both films, American, sorry, no, United 93 and World Trade Center, with the same type of change. Let's imagine a film called, instead of United 93, American 11. 
That is to say about one of the other flights where there was no redemptive moment of rebellion, they all died. Uh, or let us imagine the same World Trade Center, only no solution at the end, they die, both of the policemen. Now, what's my point here? It's that uh, far from in any way justifying or showing an understanding for the terrorist attack, attacks and so on, such a version would have confronted us with the true horror of the situation. No, that would be the encounter of what was so terrifying. This would have made us to raise the true questions. The second feature, both films, I hope you notice this, restrain not only from taking a political stance about the events, but even from depicting their larger political contexts. Neither the passengers of United 93 flight, nor the policemen in World Trade Center have any kind of a grasp on the full picture. All of a sudden, they find themselves thrown into a terrifying situation and have to make the best out of it. Now, this lack of what Fred Lemson would have called cognitive mapping is crucial. Both films depict ordinary people affected by the sudden, brutal intrusion of history, this invisible real that hurts, history with capital H, of course. All we see are the disastrous effects. So that, now I come to my point. Are you aware that, for example, in the case of World Trade Center, one can easily imagine exactly the same film, just we learn at the beginning that instead of the terrorist attack, what caused the collapse of the Twin Towers would have been, I don't know, some earthquake, some explosion of, uh, of, of oil there or whatsoever. You can imagine exactly caused the collapse of the Twin Towers would have been, I don't know, some earthquake, some explosion of, uh, of, of oil there or whatsoever. You can imagine exactly the same film or even more problematically. Now, this is really an evil mental experiment, but it makes the point. Imagine the same film taking place in a big German city bombed by American bombers in the fall of 44. You know, oh, everything stands as it is, or to be more actual. The same film taking place in a bombed high-rise building in southern Beirut during the last Lebanon-Israeli conflict. That's the point. It cannot take place there. Such a film would have been dismissed as, in the last case, a subtle pro-Hezbollah terrorist propaganda and so on. What this means, now I come to my conclusion, the second one, is that the two films' ideological political message resides in the very abstention from delivering the message. <clears throat> This abstention is sustained by an implicit trust into one's government. When the enemy attacks, you just have to do your duty, don't ask questions, and so on. What I call the Britney Spears theory of government. Namely, I remember two years ago, by mistake, mental mistake, I watched Britney Spears' interview on MTV and asked about war in Iraq, she said, I don't really understand it, I just know that we people simply should have trust our president, and so on. That's what I mean. Now, this brings me back to our starting point, <coughs> to this concrete character of the two films, depicting ordinary people in a terse, realistic mode. Any philosopher, every philosopher, knows 
Hegel's counterintuitive use of the opposition between abstract and concrete. In ordinary language, abstract are general notions, as opposed to concrete, really existing, singular objects and events. For Hegel, on the contrary, it is such immediate reality which is abstract, and to render it concrete means to deploy the complex universal context that gives meaning to it. For example, let's say if I were to smoke, I don't smoke, don't worry, but let's say, let's say if I were to smoke, uh, the, according to the usual notion of being concrete, the concrete thing would have been simply to show me here as an individual smoking, and then cigarettes, whatever, that, that are abstract notions. For Hegel, showing just me as an individual smoking is the most abstract thing you can do. The concrete approach is to provide all the network of mediations, which historical, social, which have to be here so that I can smoke. Colonization, tobacco, in, I think it was first used by natives in Latin America, so history of colonization, then psychohistory, why do we humans need tobacco, relax, stress, work, and so on. All that has, that's what makes my abstract individuality, this stupid presence of just an entity which smokes, concrete, this concrete network. And back to the two films, here I see the problem. They are both abstract in their very concreteness. The function of their down-to-earth depiction of concrete individuals struggling for life is, I claim, not just to avoid cheap commercial spectacle, but to obliterate the historical context. Here, then, is where we are that's the second sad lesson of the two films, I think, five years later. Still unable to locate September 11th into a larger narrative to provide its cognitive mapping. But nonetheless, there is some kind of not explicit but implicit underlying cognitive mapping. And that will be now my crucial point. Did you notice how in both films celebrated for their terse, realistic, down-to-earth style, there is an exception also at the level of the style, a moment which violates this style. United 93 starts with kidnappers in a motel room, praying, getting ready. They look austere, like some kind of angels of death. And the first shot after the title credits confirms this impression. It is a panoramic shot. The camera moves high above Manhattan in the night, looking down, accompanied by the sound of the kidnappers' prayers, as if the kidnappers stroll above the city, getting ready to descend on earth to ripe their harvest. Similarly, there are no direct shots of the planes hitting the towers in World Trade Center. All that we see seconds before the catastrophe, when one of the policemen is on a busy street, is an ominous shadow quickly passing over the crowd. Of course, we know from our external knowledge the shadow of the first plane just about to hit one of the Twin Towers. These shots, I claim, confirm on both films a strange theological reverberation, as if the attacks were a kind of divine intervention. Recall, what is this? But how does this implicit theology works, work? Recall the first reaction of Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson to the September 11th bombings, perceiving them as a sign that God 
lifted up its protection of the United States because of the sinful lives of the Americans. I mean, I admire people who are ready to play these hermeneutics. Like, I remember when, remember when Sharon had got a heart attack. Immediately, Pat, I think it was Pat Robertson, not, okay, one of the two, said immediately, yeah, it's divine punishment for giving Gaza, I think it was Gaza at that point, away to the Palestinians and so on. Okay, so it's, again, the punishment for uh, hedonist materialism, liberalism, sexuality, and so on. Basically, what they claimed is that the United States got what it deserved. To cut a long story short, their claim is exactly the same as the claim of the most hard radical Arab Muslim fundamentalists. What I claim is that in a hidden way, United 93 and World Trade Center tend to do the opposite but within the same field. To read the September 11th catastrophe as a blessing in disguise, as a divine intervention from above, destined to awaken us from moral slumber and to bring out the best in us. World Trade Center especially ends with the off-screen words of an anonymous narrator, spelling out in an almost vulgar, too direct way this message. Terrible events, like the Twin Towers destruction, bring out in people the worst and the best. Courage, solidarity, sacrifice for community, and so on. People are shown to be able to do things they would never imagine of being able. So it is as if our societies need a major catastrophe in order to resuscitate the spirit of communal solidarity. Now, this I find up to a point acceptable. In what sense? I think that the two films here implicitly refer to the, I'm ready even to go as far as to claim, to the implicit utopian socialist dimension of Hollywood catastrophe films. It's my old thesis that this is the only place in Hollywood where some kind of socialist utopia in a hidden way uh, survived. Why? I, I claim that you should avoid this obvious fascination with, I don't know, asteroid, comet, hitting, Earth, this big catastrophe. The true pleasure, surplus pleasure, let's call it, it's in the byproduct that when confronted with a catastrophe, people forget their aggressivity, competitiveness, and there is some kind of uh, 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 authentic uh, cooperation, solidarity, and so on, and so on. <coughs> Sorry. That aspect is okay. What I nonetheless find problematic is... Uh, <coughs> there are two things that I find problematic. Uh, the first thing is, especially in United 3, the way, the way that nonetheless Hollywood is Hollywood, the narrative, even if it's about world historical event, event or events, cannot resist the temptation of and framing it by the logic of the creation of the couple, like the two couples are reunited in United 90, sorry, in World Trade Center, even in United 93. Where do we have this reference to couples or rather family? Do you remember at the end, do you remember how the film, of course, exploits this nice, tragic, I admit it, detail how which is, I think, a fact that most of the passengers, when they knew basically that they will almost for sure die, but were still able to make a phone call. Uh, last phone call, they usually called their nearest, dearest wife, husband, daughter, son, mother, basically telling them, I love you. 
Now, okay, we can go here into a kind of a Paulinian, referring to St. Paul ecstasy, you see, even when the whole world is falling apart, what truly matters at that point when everything falling apart is love. I have a problem here. Uh, and to avoid any misunderstanding, your some of it is love. I have a problem here. Uh, and to avoid any misunderstanding, your some of you may take it as cynical, aggressive. No, it's quite the opposite. Uh, what I will say now. Why suppose that it was authentic, that moment? I claim it was, as a rule, a lie. I can well imagine, to be very cynical, I can well imagine a situation where you are, uh, uh, where, let's say, it's very cynical, but you will get my point. Let's say that one of the passengers was a cheating husband, sleeping around, blah, blah, blah. I can well imagine him, in a very sincere way, convincing himself in that total panic, you know, like the last moments of life to settle your accounts with God, with your nearest, to call your wife, even if previously, even if to be quite cynical, all the time before the kidnapping, he thought, oh, I will now escape my wife the last time I've seen her, uh, whatever, you know, to do this. So, uh, I claim that this move, this, it's not, what we get there is the ultimate self-idealization. It's precisely not the authentic core. It's a lie. Fundamental lie. What would have been a truthful moment here. Something much more brutal, and I'm not saying I would be able to do it. Now, to be cruel, but that's the point, the situation was cruel. The true ethical act for me would have been for a husband, if of course this is true, to call his wife, or the wife, the husband, tell him, listen darling, I'm about to die, but since we will never see each other again, let me make it clear. Our marriage was hell, I wanted to divorce you. Bump. <laughs> That would have been an act. And I'm not cynical here. Why not? Now we'll say, I'm cruel. I'm making fun of it. Yes, I am. But now we came to the nice point that you were kind enough to indicate about comedy and so on. You know, what is the lie? The lie is the form of tragedy itself. That is to say, I think the true horror, not only of such desperate situations, but let's go a step further of extreme situations, gulag, holocaust, of course, and so on, is that they are, how to put it, they are more tragic than tragedy. Tragedy, tragedy still presupposes a minimum of dignity. To shoot a movie, for example, on Holocaust, where you have a kind of a heroic confrontation, a Jew resists the Nazi, in kind of a, it's an obscenity. Obscenity because it gives, it concedes too much to the Nazis. I claim that the situation was so desperate that you were precisely deprived of the possibility of playing this tragic role. You can play a tragic role only insofar as you are left with a minimum space of dignity. Or, uh, uh, to put it in another way, uh, I claim that there is a deep meaning in the fact that most of the good films about Holocaust are comedies. You know, there is comedy and comedy. There is a cheap comedy. Of course, I don't agree with that, like making fun of the prisoners. But what is comedy at its most fundamental? It is precisely this incongruity, the radical gap between what you are 
And what is happening to you? One of the dimensions of the comedy. So I think the lie of what is tragedy? Tragedy is ultimately always the tragedy of a character. You know, like Oedipus, character flaw, and so on. And it's, I think, an obscenity in this way to present Holocaust as a tragedy. It would mean Jews should look deep into themselves, you know, what did we do, are we really, and so on, and so on. No, no wonder that, and I say this with all decency, because this is for me what is truly horrible in Holocaust. If you read arguably the best rendering memoirs, Primo Levi, if this is a man. Remember, there is a wonderful, wonderful, okay, it's an obscenity to say this, terrifying, uh, passage where he describes the standard, pro standards, okay, procedure. Every two months, I think, all the prisoners in Auschwitz uh, were submitted to a procedure called selectia, selection, in the sense of they had to run naked in front of a SS doctor and they were given literally like two, three seconds. Doctor sometimes even quickly looked at them. His duty was to judge. Are they fit enough to work a little bit more to survive or off you go to the gas chamber or what? No. And uh, what I'm talking about is that if you read this description coldly, if you can, you will discover that there is something in a weird, disgustingly terrifying way comical about it. Like the preparations, you know how the inmates were trying to pinch their lips to appear more red, or how they were running in a codified way to appear more healthy. This is a nightmarish, ridiculous comedy. It's the same, for example, if you read the transcripts of the Stalinist show trials. You got my point here. I'm not saying comedy in the sense of, haha, it wasn't so serious, let's laugh at it. No, I'm saying comedy because it's to concede too much to call it a tragedy. Now I come to my second point. Uh, what we should even more radically <coughs> resist is precisely this implicit theology insofar as it mobilizes apropos of a catastrophe, the logic of implicit teleological justification. When catastrophes happen, we have to read a meaning into them. Like, the, what accounts for this positive attitude after we leave the hall, after the two films, is precisely, oh, but it wasn't in vain. It did serve a deeper purpose, like to awaken us from our moral slumber, and so on, and so on. I think that here, again, as an atheist, I think we still have to learn things from my favorite piece of the Old Testament, the book of Job. What really happens there? Okay, let's dismiss things which usually theologists try to also dismiss as kind of a remainder of some pagan tradition, this nice after-dinner talk, a table talk between God and devil, you know, after the drinks, the coffee, what's that soccer job, and then let's make that wager and so on. And let's concentrate on what happens. After Job is hit by calamities, what happens? The problem is precisely this one. Does all of it have a meaning or not? To simplify it. You know what then happens? These three idiot friends come, three theologists, and it's not so much that they want, they try to make him feel guilty. They just want to convince him that 
it has a deeper meaning. Like the first one does the usual theological line. God is just, so if this is happening to you, you must have done something uh, 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 bad, even if you are not aware of it. Another guy gives another version, God is, it's a temptation to test your faith, whatever. But it has a meaning. And the greatness of Job for me is that he radically resists this meaning. His point is not so much, it's not just what is happening to me? I didn't deserve it. It's, I think, more radical. It's, I won't be duped into accepting this logic of it has to have a deeper, it has to have a deeper meaning. And that's, I think, the lesson for us today. Whenever we confront possible or actual catastrophes, ecological catastrophe, AIDS, to resist this temptation of meaning, like AIDS, oh, oh, something must, we must have done something wrong, it's a divine, or ecology, oh, to go into this new age stuff, you know, we disturb the, the balance, holistic balance of the universe, so nature is punishing us or whatever. It doesn't, we should resist meaning. In other words, uh, I claim that what this legacy of Job prohibits is precisely to take refuge in the standard transcendent figure of God as a secret master who, you know, we humans work a little bit here and there, we never know what will come out of it, but we can rely on God up there, he controls everything, somehow he will take care that things will finish well. Or, to go even further in this obscenity, you know that well-known theological metaphor used in traditional theology to justify or to account for evil. That what appears to us evil is like a stain on a picture. With our finite, finite eyes, we are like somebody who looks at a picture, picture standing here for the universe, from too close, you know. And of course, if you look from two centimeters at Mona Lisa, you see just a stain. The idea being, if you withdraw to a proper distance, you see how this stain contributes to global harmony. Now, I think... The lesson of Judeo-Christian tradition, I'm talking this as a Stalinist materialist, but uh, is for me precisely to prohibit this radically. Why? Okay. I mean, let's just replace this evil with a concrete name, Auschwitz. I mean, wouldn't it be obscene for me, disgusting, to say Auschwitz may appear to our finite view a catastrophe, but from a proper perspective, it just contributes to global harmony. Well, I would not view a catastrophe, but from a proper perspective, it just contributes to global harmony. Well, I would like to see that global harmony to, to which Auschwitz and Gulag uh, contribute. For me, for example, among other things, the meaning of crucifixion is precisely that God, as Hegel put it, God, which is that transcendent, what dies on the cross is not a messenger of God. It's God himself. In the sense of crucifixion means you no longer can evoke a transcendent God which somehow guarantees that. In other words, the message of crucifixion is Auschwitz is a catastrophe for God also. God is not allowed to withdraw into this haze from which he can say, don't worry, withdraw, you will see the global harmony good vibrations reverberating in this disharmony or whatever. Let me go on. Uh, but, now probably you will tell me an obvious counter-argument. But when I was in the movie theater watching this film, I didn't perceive this theological dimension. It must be very implicit. Is it really there? So, 
I agree. Probably you were not fully aware. That's the point. At what level, then, does this implicit ideology, theological justification function? Here, out of professional solidarity, I would like to refer to a colleague, American philosopher, who unfortunately, in tragic accident, lost his job a week ago, to a, something evil is coming, you can guess, to a well-known philosopher specialized in the relationship between what we know and what we don't know. Of course, Donald Trump's friend. I thought you would. Okay. You, <laughs> I'm here referring to his well-known interview in September, sorry, in March 2003, where he said, there are known knowns, things we know that we know. There are known unknowns, things we know that we don't know. For example, I know that there are cars outside this building in a parking lot, but I don't know how many they are. And I know that I don't know this. And then, as he put it, the unknown unknowns. Things which are so radically unknown, they're simply another dimension that we even don't know that we don't know them. And this is the limit of American philosophy today. <laughs> this is why you are in deep shit in Iraq. The fourth term is missing, if you noticed it, no? That is to say, known knowns. Known unknowns, you know what you don't know, unknown unknowns, totally other. Why not the most interesting category? Unknown knowns. Things you know, but you don't know that you know them. That's ideology. At this level, I claim theology is in those films, is in those two films. It is all that, let's call them unconscious prejudices or whatever, that we don't even, that we don't know that we know, but nonetheless, they are operative. This is how our beliefs today function. And here, okay, I will try to not to be too long, but here uh, this attitude of unknown knowns, I think, provides the key to how ideology today functions. Of course, at the level of our explicit knowledge, we are cynics today, usually. No, you don't take it seriously, I don't believe whatever I just want to realize my ego, whatever, feel pleasure, whatever. But I claim we believe much more, but not we in the depth of our souls. We practice, we materialize our beliefs. The best key to this predicament is for me, maybe some of you know it, I quote it in my parallax view, this wonderful anecdote about Niels Bohr, the quantum physics guy. It's an anecdote I found in a biography of Bohr where he was visited at his countryside wooden cottage house by a fellow scientist, and this fellow scientist noticed something strange, that above the entrance to the house, entrance door, there was a horseshoe. In Europe, this is kind of a superstitious prop item. The idea is that it prevents evil spirits, whatever evil, to enter the house. So the friend asked Niels Bohr, my God, I thought you were a scientist. Do you believe in it? Why do you have this there? I, uh, Bohr gave a perfect answer. Of course, I don't believe in it. But I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> this is how ideology works today. You don't have to, you don't have to believe in it. As it were, your practice. You just practice belief. Which is why we can be cynical as much as you want, but there always is a belief embodied either in what you do or also a very interesting phenomenon. In you transpose belief onto another, 
as Lacan would have put it, the big other beliefs. Now let me give you two examples on this, which are one of, no, maybe even not both of them are known to you, from two opposite systems, Hollywood and Stalinism. Hollywood. You saw Hitchcock's, I hope you know it by heart, Hitchcock's Vertigo. You know that scene, uh, after 40 minutes into film, I think, after first fake suicide attempt of Madeleine, she jumps into the water there, I mean, uh, beneath uh, Golden Gate Bridge. Scotty brings her home, and uh, then there is a long panning shot. Scotty is room, then camera moves diagonally. First, it shows kitchen sink, and above it, her underwear, her clothes. Of course, he undressed her and put her into bed, and then slowly it moves the camera towards the door, his bedroom, of his bedroom where she is. Now, that's the logic. But now do something if you have the film on DVD. Put it on freeze when it is showing the underwear above the kitchen sink, no, hanging. You will see that there is no underwear. It's just abstract pieces of cloth, towels, and so on. Why? I read it in a book on Vertigo, in a French one. It's incredible. Hayes Code blocked it, no? They said, no, if you really see the underwear, this would have been a material proof that within the logic of the narrative, uh, <coughs> Scotty saw Kim Novak naked. No, we won't allow this. <laughs> now, isn't there something <coughs> strange about this? Because ask yourself a simple question. Whom were the Hays Code censors trying to protect? Not us. Every spectator, normal spectator, automatically, on the contrary, automatically assumes that what he or she sees is, uh, is the underwear. So it is as if another objectified, virtual gaze is presupposed. In Lacanian terms, this phantasmatic gaze of the big other, and that gaze, which can be eventually in our life, lives, uh, perceived as the gaze of children, of the leader, the innocence of this gaze should be protected. Now, let's jump for another, I think, even nicer example in Stalinism. 53, you know, the great leader died. Okay. Then, uh, at that very point, the first volume of Soviet encyclopedia appeared. I don't know which edition. The point is there were, of course, among other things, two pages on Lavrenti Beria, you know, KGB, Stalin's henchman, and so on. Uh, and it was like, this was, were basically two pages, one leaf. First, a little bit of the preceding article, the Biberia on the next side, and then, okay. The problem was that then, as befits Stalinism, half a year later, in the fall or in summer, Beria was unfortunately discovered to be an English spy shot and so on. Okay, the, became a non-person. So what happened? Something absolutely breathtaking, which tells us a lot about the functioning of social order. Every subscriber of Encyclopedia got a letter with a new page. He was asked to cut out the old page, send it, and stuck in the new page. And they took care that the continuity was perfect. That is to say, first it was the end of the previous article entry. Then, you know, it's nice what they did with photos. Instead of bear, B-E-R, they put bearing, bearing pass, you know, between Alaska and uh, Siberia. But, and so that, you know, you put it in and the continuity was perfect, seamless. Again, the same enigma. Whom were they trying to deceive? Of course, not the people. The people knew it. They had to do it. 
So again, you have kind of a, almost like in the medieval times, a proof of the existence of God, a proof of the presupposed existence of the big other. No? That's the mystery of Stalinism for me. How? The most brutal regime, killing people ruthlessly, whatever. At the same time, total panic, incredibly sensitive for appearances. As if to disturb an appearance, everything falls apart. Again, this is how beliefs function. Now, let's go on. Of course, what this means is that we never, this, what this means is I claim that we never believe. Even if you have a fully religious person, if he were to really experience God, it would have been an absolute shock for him, I claim. It's a kind of a, when we believe, it's always a minimally virtual belief, which is why, for example, it's always a minimally virtual belief, which is why, for example, I find totally consistent. I had recently, two years ago, okay, not so recently, a debate with bishops in Vienna, and I asked them a couple of provocative questions. One was, what's your attitude towards, you know, that Turin shroud, allegedly the shroud with which Christ was covered with blood stains, which blah, blah. They told me frankly, privately, not publicly there, we pray day and night that it's not the authentic one. Because they told me why, that it would have been terrifying if it were to be proven why. Okay, the first reason they gave is a more pragmatic one. They said, my God, shit, with all this biogenetics, you know, then the question, who is the father, becomes an empirical one. And as one bishop told me, what if we discovered that there was some Arab or Egyptian slave there really doing it? They were terrified. But I think there is a more radical dimension at it. The problem is that Isaac Asimov, I don't like him as a writer, but he put it very nicely once. He said that there are two possibilities. Either there is somebody out there, aliens, God, so that we are not alone, or we are alone. And he said, both options are unbearable for us. No, to really accept a radically atheist position is unimaginable. But to really encounter another is paranoia. So you need a kind of a a virtualized position, which shouldn't be too directly realized. Which is why, did you see a movie, again, I don't like the film, but the idea is nice, from 92 with Steve Martin, Leap of Faith, about this kind of a con artist, southern preacher, pulling these tricks, uh, 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 healing uh, crippled, sorry, politically correct, disabled persons, and so on. And then, at some point, he himself is surprised by the fact that he does perform a miracle. And it totally shatters. It totally uh, breaks him down. So I think that the first thing to notice is how uh, there is always a minimal tension in us between belief disbelief. We believe, but our belief is not this direct, brutal, realistic belief. Paul Vane the French historian, wrote a wonderful book called Did the Ancient Greeks Believe in Their Myths? Where he proves that, of course, they did not literally. Like, they were not so stupid as to think that if you climb to the top of the Mount Olympus, you will there see, I don't know, Zeus fighting family fight with Hera or whatever. They did not. But also, he points out very nicely, we shouldn't impute to them our metaphoric notion and claiming that, no, for them, I don't know. Zeus was just the personification of a cosmic principle or natural force or whatever. It's a very specific 
virtuality of belief, which is why we have this automatic attitude that, how uh, should I put it, when you express, externalize your belief, I claim, you do it usually to get rid of it, in the sense of, you know, it's out there to disengage minimally yourself. Uh, like, uh, uh, isn't it that we are often surprised when somebody who professes a belief and then you discover, my God, but this guy really believes. I think this old Marx Brothers jokes holds a version of, you know, with Marx Brothers, it looks as if he's an idiot. This man looks and acts as if he believes, but this shouldn't deceive you, he really believes. That's all, it's always a shock. There always is a minimal gap. And this gap is crucial, even in our most actual problems. Let's take global warming. What really happens there? Why don't we act? I think that it's too simple to rely just on this leftist paranoia in the sense of, you know, oh, the big companies, uh, 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 multinationals are deceiving us, blah, blah. No, I think and it's also not that we cannot be certain. We know. But I claim we don't believe it. It's this fetishist split. I know very well, but what do I mean? We know, you cannot deny. I think that the scientific data are convincing enough. But what happens? Let's say you read the report, you know, but then you go out. You see the stars, the sun, flowers, animals. But you cannot believe that this, you know, we are embedded beings, part of this life world. You cannot really believe that this can be shattered. You know, but you cannot believe it. <clears throat> Which is why one different, one, I think, may problematic maybe for some of you conclusion from this. Which is why I totally disagree with those, especially, let's call them uh, uh, California Heideggerians, like Hubert Dreyfus and so on. Uh, those who claim that in order that uh, the root of ecological problems is our alienation in this attitude of scientific technological manipulation, which presupposes some kind of disembodied abstract subjectivity, and that we should accept how this scientific technological manipulative attitude of technological domination over nature is just a secondary byproduct or alienation of the original embeddedness in our life world. I claim that that embeddedness, far from being a solution, is precisely the problem. The problem in the sense that uh, this is what ultimately prevents us from taking uh, seriously ecological crisis, which is why I think if we are to take it seriously, we should precisely do this faithful step and unlearn or somehow try to very difficult to do, to step outside this, our most elementary embeddedness in a life world. We should adopt some kind of a virtual abstract existence, which is for me even a kind of freedom. I will return to this later. So let me go on. At what level does this embeddedness, which of course is an ideological complex determined by all those unknown knowns, implicit beliefs, functions, Ah, now we come to the next specification. Uh, let me talk a little bit about, because there we find these unknown knowns, these implicit rules. How 
social groups work. Okay, let's, of course, every social group from family to, I don't know what, is usually identified by its normative structure, a set of rules that you have to obey, which determine, which identify you as a member of that group. Uh, but I claim that things are always, for theoretical reasons that Lacanian psychoanalysis can easily explain, a little bit more complex. We never simply have rules and then you obey them, you are in, you don't obey them, you make a social mistake, you are out. The problem is that if you obey rules, if you simply radically obey rules, you appear an absolute idiot, you are out. Which is why incidentally they are no longer fashionable. All those courses of, you know, learning to behave as a gentleman, as a lady in the old times, were counterproductive. You appeared as an idiot. Because to be truly a gentleman, it's not simply to obey the rules of being a gentleman. It's to know in what way to violate those rules. What does this mean? Imagine a social prohibition. I claim that if you are normal, and we are, the first question you ask yourself, when somebody tells you, oh, this is prohibited, is, but what does he mean by it? Is it really literally prohibited? Or is it implicitly do it, but do it discreetly? Or it is even a call to violate it, you know, especially with sexual prohibitions. You never know where you are, Kushke put it. No, the greatest, if you take seriously a demand in an erotic exchange, you may appear the greatest idiot. Uh, but even more problematic, I think, and interesting is the opposite example. Not something is prohibited, but the meta rule tells you it's secretly a call to do it, but in a certain way. The opposite example of you are allowed permitted to do something, but you are given a freedom of choice, but on condition that you don't use it. You're on, on condition that you do not do what you are permitted. And again, let me give you a couple of example, examples to make this logic clear. Recently I spoke with a Japanese friend who told me that in Japan workers have the right guaranteed, usually workers fully employed, to 40 days of holiday every year. However, my friend quickly added, they are expected not to use this right in its full extent. The implicit rule is not to take more than 20 days. So, European idiot as I was, I tell them, okay, but why don't you then simply put it directly? It's 20. He told me, I don't understand anything, I'm an idiot. And he was right. <laughs> because although this excess may appear nonsensical, that's true communication. Communication means this empty gestures. You know what I mean. Let me give you two other examples, or even three from daily life that you must know. Uh, I don't know if it's with you. In my country, it's this ritual. If I and some close friend of mine, <clears throat> if we are engaged in a competition for some scholarship, if we are engaged in a competition for some scholarship, post, whatever, and let's say he wins, it's a ritual for him to tell me, you know, I know that you really deserve this. So I will step down. But I'm expected to say, no, thanks. No, no, you can have it. Now, you will say it's an empty exchange. What's the result of it? It is the social link friendship or whatever. Or even a more vulgar example. When you, if you are a poor and a rich friend, whatever person older, invites you to a restaurant, it's absolutely clear to both of you that he will pay. But isn't it there a structural necessity of this short ritual where you insist a little bit that you will pay, but then 
But then I hope you don't make the mistake I made years ago. I insisted a little bit too long, and then the friend said, okay, pay if you want. <laughs> but let me give you a much more refined example, which happened to me, it's very traumatic for me, this summer in a Swiss resort, some kind of stupid summer school to corrupt intellectuals, where I was there with, among others, my good friend, or even we theoretically hate each other, send each other to Gulag and so on, but personally we are friends, Judith Butler. We were once in a normal conversation, and then I did something, I must admit it, don't be afraid, nothing against her, I am the bad guy here, absolutely. I used some very vulgar words, you know, I called her a degenerate freak and so on. I thought this is humor, okay, it's a very weird humor, but I don't know why I did it. Maybe my defense should have been, you know, that creepy evangelical guy, Haggard or what, no, this kind of, there is a dark side of myself, I'm fighting it, but cannot dominate it, okay. So, I saw that I did something terribly wrong. So, I called her later and sincerely apologized, absolutely, unconditionally, with none of this, uh, None of this uh, John Kerry or whoever tricks, no. If somebody felt offended, then, you know. Then she did something very nice. She told me something like, thanks, I appreciate it, but I wasn't offended. I knew you didn't mean it. So, really, you owe me no apology. She was very sincere in this. But you got my point. My point is that she was able to say, you owe me no apology, only after I gave her the apology. If I were not to give her apology, it wouldn't fun. This excess is the excess of these implicit rules. And I claim everything hangs on these implicit rules. Our entire, how should I call it, ethical substance hangs on these implicit rules, which are crucial but cannot be directly normativized or even worse, uh, penalized. This, I think, is, for me at least, one of the problems of political correctness. That, the way I see it, it tends to legalize what precisely should function as this kind of a spontaneous set of rules. And that's, I think, an ethical catastrophe. Because the moment you have to do it, the battle is already lost. You know what I mean? For example, uh, it's obscene to say, I oppose rape in our societies, hopefully I'm glad that it is, and then to give arguments. I want to live in a society where you don't have to argue about this. Where simply, if somebody claims we men should be allowed to rape, I don't know, he appears a jerk, an idiot, or you know what I mean? The moment you have to argue explicitly, the battle is lost, which is right. This accounts, I think, from, for one of the ethical tragedies today for me. Uh, that what I found so horrible, many people misunderstood me here about the debates on torture now, should be torture terrorists and so on. It's not so much torture as such. No, I'm opposed to it, don't understand me. But to be very frank, the field is open in the sense of in some crazy situation, let's be melodramatic in this quick sense, you know, some evil guys have my small daughter, they're beating her, and I catch one of these guys. In despair, I cannot look you into the eye and guarantee that I wouldn't torture the guy. But I think the true catastrophe of the debate on torture is not in torture, but in debate. Even if you are opposed to it, it's that we accepted it as a topic of debate. 
So, what goes wrong here in the debate on torture? There is a book, Sam Harris, The End of Belief, published, I think, about a year ago, by, uh, uh, and which uh, was a New York Times bestseller, who, which advocates torture. And now a little bit of this. Why, what is wrong in the book? Many things. Uh, it's based on, among other things, advocates torture. It's based on a very crude analogy with evolutionary logic. It claims that what prevents us from torturing people, it's a kind of a, a ethical illusion, which is similar to the moon illusion. In the sense of, you know, we know now that moon is not a small object that we see, but a much larger object. In the same way, in ethics, we do not yet know that we are not yet able, at the level of our ethical gut feeling, to take into account the fact that suffering of those we don't see, who are far away, matters much more than the suffering of somebody here. If we were to set our rules properly, then we should be not only able, but even it would have been our duty, if you can prevent much greater suffering of others, to torture somebody who is here. Then, Sam Harris allows for the point that we cannot get out of this illusion, which is for him, as he puts it in slightly cynical term, a neurological evolutionary illusion. He imagines a truth pill, a drug, that was his solution for our sensitivities, to develop a drug which you give it to the terrorist, injection pill, and then the terrorists, for the external view, seems just to fall asleep. But internally, it's a total nightmare, but you cannot detect it outside, no? And then he awakens after half an hour and, my God, confesses that he kills his mother, whatever, everything. Uh, and he thinks that would have been the solution. Uh, I have problems here. The first problem is that this, what he proposes is basically decaffeinated torture, no? Like in the same way, and that's our, con uh, let's call it postmodern ideological condition. In the same way that we want coffee without caffeine, we want, I don't know, beer without alcohol, uh, 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 muffins without fat and so on, here you get even torture without uh, the bad effect, like decaffeinated torture. And we get everything here. This is expanded on all domains. Like I claim that one of the weak points, failures of the usual liberal multiculturalism is that it's, a, again, a decaffeinated uh, multiculturalism. The other, yes, but a decaffeinated other. Like, the most racist thing for me, I prefer a brutal John Wayne claiming Indians, Native Americans were barbarians to this, you know, if you listen to some politically correct freaks, Native American, that kind of, you know, people dancing their ecological dances, obsessed with harmony and balance and so on. That's racism at its worst. So that's my first problem. My second problem is a very cynical one. KGB already did it. I read in the history of KGB that Srpski Institute, which was the psychiatric wing of KGB, in the 60s and 70s, developed some strange, me okay, medicine, not medicine, they injected to arrested dissidents near heart, in the heart region, some liquid, which, again, from the outside, you just appear to doze off a little bit. From the inside, it was nightmare, as if you are prevented breathing and so on. It was the thing. But 
Something more radical is at work here. Which dimension is lost when you treat your, the other people the way Sam Harris proposes? I claim that the dimension of what in Judeo-Christian tradition is called neighbor, and I'm an atheist, I'm not now using it in any mystical term or religious even, but simply in the term of the abyss of the other's personality, of this intensity of being too close to the other in this his, her abyss of the other's desire and so on. There is something nightmarish in being confronted by this abyss of the other, which is why the neighbor is always too close, if you want. No, the neighbor is, uh, it's not only, it's not physical proximity as Sam Harris thinks. The neighbor is always too close. It always has to be moved a little bit further uh, away. So, uh, this neighbor is properly monstrous. This neighbor is not the nice guy. This is the caffeinated neighbor, you know, the nice guy with whom you share your experiences and so on. Which is why my first, my further crazy conclusion, which is why I radically oppose this standard notion of we should understand each other in the sense of if you we should all tell each other our stories and then we will understand each other. Or, as a poetic saying goes, an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. Isn't this beautiful? Like, no, I just objectified you, I should see your side. Uh, I am opposed to this. Why? Because, okay, let's again make a simple mental experiment. Let's replace enemy with Hitler. Would you also say, Hitler was our enemy because we didn't hear his story or whatever? No! I mean, the, the presupposition of this is that the stories that people are telling themselves about themselves are truth. No, they can be lies, I think. Hitler did horrible things. The truth is in what he did. And the story, his side of the story, as it were, is his side of the story is a lie here. So again, I just wanted to draw attention to this, that neighbor is not this, the other whom I should understand. No. Neighbor is the abyss of otherness. The other, the neighbor himself or herself, is trying to escape from this abyss by telling himself stories about himself. And now I come finally to this fear, because I claim that the fear which predominates in today's politics is ultimately the fear of the neighbor, formulated as a defense against potential victimization or harassment. That is to say, did you notice how today, in our post-ideological era, where people no longer uh, believe you cannot mobilize them for some higher cause, the only way to truly mobilize people, to introduce passion into politics, is to mobilize or to refer to fear. Left also, not only right, unfortunately, fear of immigrants, fear of crime, fear of godless sexual depravity, fear of excessive state control, fear of ecological catastrophes, fear of harassment, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's fear, fear which is the point. And again, this fear, I think, is manipulated in nice way, in exclusive way by religion. Religion precisely prohibits you to keep, to maintain some kind of meaning so that this fear doesn't uh, overwhelm you, and I claim that even ecology, unfortunately, functions in this way, as 
fear, fear of losing some kind of grounding. As if there is nature, we disturb the balance, fear is, let's not disturb it too much, let's return to it. I claim that this is the worst environmental ideology. I claim that the first, the ABC to truly confront ecological crisis is to confront fully the fact that there is no nature. No, I mean, I'm a materialist, there is. But what I'm saying is that, that this, our spontaneous notion of nature as some kind of a balanced, holistic, whatever exchange, which is then disturbed by human intervention, is false. There are, nature is one big catastrophe. Nature is not balanced in itself. I claim that this image of nature as opposed to human hubris is precisely human projection at its worst. So I think that the only way to overcome this fear, I will not have time, obviously, to speak to someone to develop it all, but the only time to, the only way to overcome this fear is through, for me, fear and terror are not two words for the same thing, are exactly the opposite. It's to Fear is, you still think you have some roots, some grounding. You are afraid to lose it. The solution is to accept that there is no way back. In the sense of, you have nowhere to return. There is no natural balance or whatsoever. That is to say that, in a way, we accept the abyss of our freedom. Or, as he put it, he here being Mao Zedong, and I don't have any specific uh, ethico-political love for Mao Zedong. We know enough now how, for example, the famine of late 50s was planned. They coolly accepted 35 million people to die in order to be able to export food to Russia and so on. But nonetheless, there is something which incredibly attracted me in how Mao Zedong, in his famous text from uh, 90, uh, 1955, Why the Chinese People Cannot Be Cowed by the American Atom Bomb, how he justifies there this lack of fear. It's not what we usually, some of us who still remember. You are, many of you are young. You don't probably know that, you know, 20 years ago, there was still politics. There were students organized as left. You know, this was fairy tales, another era. Okay. And, that was, and uh, the usual version was that, so what? United States can bomb us. We have a billion people. They can kill half a billion. There still is half a billion. No, it wasn't this. Let's read Mao. He goes on then and says, I quote him, but even if the United States atom bombs were so powerful that when dropped on China, they would make a hole right through the earth or even blow it, the earth up, that would hardly mean anything to the universe as a whole, though it might be a minor event for the solar system. So you see the madness of Mao. Now the question is, from where does he talk? Like, oh, so what? The earth. The, sorry, the earth disappears, but we live in a universe, well, who cares? It's, I claim that, although this is, of course, madness, but I claim that a minimum of this madness, <coughs> sorry, a minimum of this madness is present in every authentic fight for struggle or whatever. You must go to this fearless point of accepting terror. Now, I was told that I can talk as long as I want, but I warn the organizers that my friends call me Fidel, no? So, uh, like, it can go on. So, I know that you have limits, so let me maybe just 
conclude by at least reporting you on what I uh, wanted to develop. What I wanted to develop is, I don't have time, unfortunately, something about uh, how this fear relates to violence, why violence is such a topic in the form of harassment and so on for us today. And then the crucial point, I wanted to go into problematizing the, the very notion of tolerance in a critical dialogue with Wendy Brown, her wonderful last book, uh, Regulating Adversion. Of course, uh, the first thing to note here, it's a simple observation, which I like from Wendy, which is, are we aware how today we tend to perceive as problems of tolerance or intolerance, problems, conflicts which 20, 30, 50 years ago were not perceived as problems of tolerance. For example, remember the big moment of struggle against racism, Martin Luther King. Look his speeches. He barely uses, I think, I made this experiment on internet, I downloaded some of his speeches and then searched tolerance, intolerance. It's practically absent, the very word. For him, racism against the blacks was not a problem of intolerance. It was the problem of inequality, exploitation, injustice, and so on. So the first question is, why do we today formulate or perceive these problems as problems of tolerance? I think it has something quite a lot to do with what we may call the culturalization of politics. That is to say, we all accept basically this post-political uh, 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 reduction of politics to post-politics, expert administration, compromises, and so on, so that then, because of this, all the remaining sources of conflict are perceived as cultural conflicts. Which is why I claim there is no opposition between Fukuyama and the guy who spreads around Huntington disease, and it's appropriately called Huntington, that is to say, clash of civilizations. I claim that clash of civilizations is precisely politics at the end of history, culturalized politics. Okay, now, uh, uh, Wendy Brown, in a detailed criticism, tries to undermine this liberal position, convincing as she is, I have a whole series of problems there with her account. Let me go just to the crucial problem that I see with her. I, uh, the problem is that I think, of course, her criticism is the standard one. It is that we in the West have this liberal notion of what? Ah, it's very interesting how she develops it. And she is right here. It's that uh, what is our definition of barbarian, fundamentalist barbarian? It's to cut a long story short, pure culture. That is to say, barbarians are those who are fully identified to their culture. To be civilized means precisely not to be fully one's culture. It means, you know, this minimum liberal freedom. I can step in, out. Culture is no longer... To be civilized means precisely not to be fully one's culture. It means, you know, this minimum liberal freedom. I can step in, out. Culture is no longer a substantial determination of our life. It is one of the ways of life which you can enter, exit, and so on. So, uh, uh, of course, then it's easy for Wendy to show how, although liberalism presents itself as above 
particular cultures. It effectively privileges a certain culture, our culture. For example, this notion of choice, way of life, and so on, privileges individual competitiveness against social solidarity and so on and so on, which are features of a certain culture. But there is something else that, to conclude, if you give me literally just a couple of minutes, uh, there is something else which is more crucial here, I think. I think her crucial limitation, the way I see it, is that her procedure of critique of ideology remains that of a hermeneutics of suspicion towards the universal. That is to say, her basic formula is what is sold to us, what ruling, the ruling ideology is selling us, telling us, and appears as universal, universal human right and so on. You know, this standard logic, universality is false universality. What is really beneath it are particular interests. Like, you know, human rights only appear to be universal human rights. In reality, they are, you know the story, the rights of male, white, Western, individualist, capitalist individuals. So, it's this simple, traditional Marxist demystification of false universality. I have, and I think it's crucial to insist today on this, I have two problems here, if you just allow to conclude me. The first problem, even if it is a false mask, if there is a thing to be learned from theory of ideology, is that don't mess with appearances. Appearances have an actuality efficiency of their own. Let's take precisely human rights. Yes, it's absolutely true. They are a mystification, just a, of blah, blah. But nonetheless, their formal autonomy, even if it's an appearance, generates results of their own. Like, of course, they were at the beginning only human rights of uh, white men, but as you know how the story then goes, Mary Wollstonecraft, then women said, why not also us? Then, I think, and the most noble moment of French Revolution, the Haiti Revolution, when blacks asserted, why not us? And I think it was the heroic moment of, of Robespierre, people of uh, Jacobins, that they fully accepted this. I think it's truly one of the sublime moments of French Revolution, when the Haiti delegation came and Robespierre received them and said, look at them. There is absolutely no difference between them and us. We are both fully citizens of the French Republic and all that stuff, and so on and so on. This was something. So again, what Wendy Brown underestimates a little bit is how even illusion can produce very real emancipatory effects. In other words, it's easy to play <coughs> the game of demystification or corruption. Something that was originally authentic gets commercialized, exploited, and so on and so on. Like you can say, in, I don't know, maybe, not quite, in the case of jazz, gospels, originally black protest, or then commercial recording, blah, blah. But I think what is much more interesting for a dialectical analysis is the opposite procedure. It is when something that be began as a fake or brutally imposed imperialist, blah, blah, colonialist ideology is taken over, recontextualized, reappropriated. Like Christianity, Mexico, you know the story, the Black Virgin of Guadalupe. Isn't this precisely the moment when Christianity was no longer simply the ideology of colonizers, but was partially at least appropriated by the colonized to articulate their grievances? The second 
point is even more crucial here. And this is, I think, where the true disagreement between me and Wendy Brown lies. Uh, I claim that this is only one aspect, this uh, hermeneutics of suspicion where you denounce universality, you discover particular interests. But the basic lesson of Hegel, of Marx, of all those guys whom I, I'm an outdated dinosaur, still like, is that there is an even more crucial, perhaps, opposite operation. Not you perceive yourself ideologically as advocating universal rights, but you mystify the situation, you really privilege your position, but you perceive yourself as only pursuing, following your particular view, goals, notions, but you are, what you are unaware is precisely the universal dimension of what you are doing. It's, you get the point, it's the exact opposite, it's that, it's the universality of your acts which is hidden, which escapes you. And I think in this sense, when we analyze capitalism, it's absolutely wrong to focus only on this so-called Eurocentric aspect and claim, oh, it appears universal, it's really Eurocentric, and so on and so on. No, I think that capitalism is effectively universal, not only in the vulgar sense that, that we have uh, capitalism can be combined with Buddhism, with Hinduism, with uh, Catholicism, Protestantism, whatever, but something much more radical. Actual universality is not part of this stupid game. How do I know when I say something universal that it's really universal and so on? It's a much more mysterious, concrete event. It's that what Hegel calls actual universality, universality for itself, which means that you relate to yourself as universal. For example, to give you the most obvious example. Of course, people always, in the division of labor, almost always, did different things. In medieval society, they did not all, they were not all serfs, you know. There were serfs, farmers, there were knights, there were priests, there were guild members, artisans, and so on. But nonetheless, we know story, the story Max Weber and so on, it is stupid and wrong to say that if you ask a knife, a knight, what's your profession, even for him to say my profession is to be a knight, it's stupid. <clears throat> the notion of profession presupposes this modern space of contingency where <clears throat> what you are in your particular identity is something ultimately contingent up to a point depending on your choice, which means that you yourself do not identify yourself with your particular role and so on. You yourself perceive yourself as if the core of your being is universal and the particular way of life form of your existence is ultimately contingent. And I think that this element is crucial. And I think this element is not only the element of universality present in capitalism, but it's even a very positive element, I claim, that true multiculturalism, authentic, or however we call it, begins with you being able to perceive, not only to respect others, that for me always a fake, the catch is, are you able to fully experience, endorse, assume the contingency of your own cultural leg legacy? That you do, the, you know, as Descartes put it in a wonderful way in his, I think, meditations or where 
on the first philosophy that uh, first he thought, oh, how stupid are other civilizations, uh, Persians, Arabs, Jews, and so on. But then he asked himself a question, my God, but if I look at myself through others' eyes, do not I also appear to myself, maybe my way of life must also appear to others as a stupid, ridiculous, and so on. And you see the catch here. The catch is not, oh, but it, was he really able to perceive himself through the other eyes? The, the catch is just that he experienced his own particular determination as something ultimately contingent. In this sense, universality is, as Hegel would have put it, a work of negativity. The universality of capitalism is what? It's not that we will all eat hamburgers. Here I respectfully agree, for example, with Homi Baba, who claims uh, capitalism in culture uh, universalizes, erases differences. No, I claim. Capitalism emphasizes difference. World capitalism does not mean we will all eat hamburgers. It means to each of us, his, her, their own way of life, but way of life precisely experienced as not our total determination, but as our particular way of life. That's capitalist universality at work. In the sense that, for example, if you are a Hindu or a Jew or what, being a Jew is no longer the fundamental determination of your being. It's something you do in the afternoon, but in the morning you work on the market or whatever. Like it's, you know, it's this transubstantiation of what in traditional society is your substantial determination into the morning you work on the market or whatever. Like it's, you know, it's this transubstantiation of what in traditional society is your substantial determination into a contingent idiosyncrasy of the way of life. So I talk very Long, so just to conclude, what does this universality mean politically? Just to conclude, I cannot restrain from concluding with another dirty joke, of course. Uh, I claim that what bothers me politically today is that a kind of a fake sense of urgency pervades the left liberal humanitarian discourse. One of the indications of this fake sense of urgency is, do you notice this a certain, for me, I find it disgusting, rhetorics of immediate references. Like, if I were to be like that, I would then talk like this. Are you aware that for every word that I used here in this time, 10 children died of hunger in Africa, or for every sentence that I said here, a woman was raped on our streets. It's true, but so what? First, so what? Of course, it's horrible that this happens. But by so what, I mean... Uh, what is the function of such references? I claim to prevent us to think. This false urgency means don't think, don't analyze, do it. No wonder that today Bill Gates is saying this. When I was young, there was still this anti-capitalist discourse. Oh, they live up there in their ivory tower. They don't see the suffering. Did you notice how today, well, for reasons that I cannot explain now, charity is the fundamental mode, I think it's strictly, it's no longer even ideology, it's not as, it, as in the times of Andrew Carnegie, you know, that you steal first everything and then you give half away and then you are the greatest humanitarian and so on. In the days of Andrew Carnegie, it was still a personal idiosyncrasy. I think that today, through figures like Bill Gates, uh, uh, Soros, and so on, is becoming a necessity, even an economic necessity. I claim that it's one of the keys to what is going on today is this necessity of this uh, 
charitable humanitarian activity, which precisely further, further pushes or asserts this cultural depoliticization, how should I put it, no? Problems are resolvable not through politics proper, but through, but through uh, humanitarian acts. So, because of this, I claim, one, uh, one should absolutely, how should I put it, precisely, if one wants really to confront the problems, to retain, how do you call it, cold blood or what, not to get lost in this, oh my God, isn't it decadent, I'm here at the university spending years and out there people are dying and so on and so on. One should be a Marxist here. <laughs> Which kind of Marxist? A Marxist and a Leninist. With these two jokes, I will end up. I read simply, I was simply, uh, recently reading some, a letter, wonderful one, of Marx to Engels in 1870, where, as you maybe know, for some time it looked, Paris Commune, the, and so on, it was a total illusion, of course, but it looked to them that there will immediately be, explode, an all European revolution. So then Marx write to Engels a very desperate letter, like, my God, can't they wait? They want a revolution? I haven't yet finished my capital and so on. No, that's an attitude that we shouldn't be uh, afraid of. So we should gather the courage to step back. That's what, uh, that's what the ruling ideology today, that's what it is afraid of, which is why they always support all these charitable things, blah, 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 but not the, let's call it abstract social reflection. In other words, let me conclude, now really conclude, <laughs> with a joke that I usually somewhere in my work, but will give a new twist to it, a well-known joke from my youth on Lenin, you know, maybe you know it. Uh, when I was young, still a communist country, and we had almost in all of the classes, I remember in elementary school, this Lenin's answer when he was asked to give an advice to young people, what should they do, no? It was learn, learn, and learn. No, and it was in our school. Learn, learn, and learn, Lenin, and so on. This slogan was all present. It's the background of the joke. The joke is not. This kind of imaginary joke of a situation where Marx, Engels, and Lenin are asked, what would they prefer to have, a wife or a mistress? Marx answers, wife. He was, we all know, more conservative. Okay, of course, this didn't prevent him from having an illegitimate child with his servant, but that's another story. He pretended to be. Look, Engels, more a bon vivant, said a mistress. Then Lenin, to everyone's surprise, says, I want both, wife and mistress. Now, this was a shock. Lenin was supposed to be, you know, totally ascetic and so on. What is it? Was he a hidden pervert? No, Lenin, then they ask him, but why? Ah, wouldn't this take too much of your revolutionary time. Where is the revolution? <laughs> Lenin said, no, 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 precisely. The point is that I can tell to my wife that I have to be with the mistress and tell to the mistress that I have to be with my wife. And then uh, they ask him, okay, but what do you do? Now we got the point. Lenin answers you, learn, learn, and learn. <laughs> and I think that's what we should sometimes do. If by wife we mean job, official, recognized activity. If by mistress we mean this, protesting, but this immediate, non-reflective, active protesting. We should maybe play a little bit of this. Step back, learn, learn, and learn. There are situations in which we really, in the long term, do much more to, how should I put it, to help positive potential changes in this way than in a too direct engagement. If the engagement is too direct, it can, in a way, that we are not aware of 
How's the put it? Serve the system. For example, to conclude, no, I will lie, but it's two minutes. It's such a nice anecdote that I cannot resist telling it. Maybe some of you know it. If there is a radical theory today, popular, that is the, uh, the theoretical reference of Negri and Hart empire and so on, it's Deleuze Gattari, no? Ah, this summer I was in Israel. There and in Ramallah also, of course, helping my friend Udi Aloni to do some propaganda for his uh, anti-Zionist film. But uh, there he told me a story, my friend Udi Aloni, which was such a shock to me. I thought first it's kind of a bad joke, you know, like they want me to appear an idiot. Whatever. But then, no, he took me to one of the officers and, my God, they showed me books. So if this, what I will tell you now is a lie, then we live in a, in a uh, Truman's show world, you know what I mean? They should have organized part of Israeli army should be included. Namely, to cut a long story short, Israel Defense Forces have an academy. This academy tries to theorize how to fight intifada, how to fight what they perceive as uh, Palestinian terrorism and so on. You know what is one of their main, and by this I mean really one of their main, like not just mentioned in a footnote, but substantially referred to as source of concept, theoretical references, the uh, lesson Gattari, Mil Plateau, Thousand Plateau. Then they conceptualize all their fight against Intifada as the problem of nomadic warriors, restructuring space, multitude. It's unbelievable how the structure is the reference to the Les Gattari. What does follow from it? Not, I'm not an idiot, I greatly appreciate the Les Gattari. It's not that, oh, you see, the Les Gattari really ideologists of Zionist imperialism or what. I'm just saying that everything practically can be appropriated. By this, I don't mean that you should become paranoid and do nothing. No, the rules are here much more refined. Something, one of the lessons that I learned is that sometimes you can do something minor, small, just, and although it may not appear a big thing, it has a much more explosive effect than kind of a brutal, big opposition. So, but to know this, you must learn, learn, and learn. Thank you very much. You know, just I warn you, did you see James Bond Goldfinger? You know that famous scene, the car? where James Bond can press the button, and that's my dream of a truly democratic discussion. To have this kind of a, of a plan of this call with buttons, and if you ask me a bad question, I press the button, you go up, and then... <laughs> Fortunately, unfortunately, you're not... Okay, sorry, please. Ah. Or was there any... Please, I am myopic, so be brutal. Otherwise... I will not see you, and then I can be accused of racism, sexism, speciesism, whatever. Okay, sorry. You want a microphone? Is there? Oh, it's there, yeah. Where am I going? No, I just wanted to say that in the version of an anecdote about Lenin, which I remember from my kind of childhood in Russia, it's even...
No, I just wanted to say that in the version of an anecdote about Lenin, which I remember from my kind of childhood in Russia, it's even stronger, which I, I think you know, maybe, like maybe supports your point. Yeah. So Lenin says, okay, you know, you tell mistress you go to a wife, you, you tell wife you go to a mistress, and what you actually do, you go to the library and learn, learn, and study. Ah, is this, uh -huh. right. uh, you see, but I, I think, no, no, I totally accept, because what I like is how, in, uh, how, how to put it, when you find the same matrix of the joke, but there can be, a, for example, this will be very vulgar, but I like, for example, I will prove you how more, much more vulgar Wislovins are. Wislovins have the same joke as the Jews, the structure. A kind of a incestuous joke or, you know, the son asks his mother, what is Oedipus complex, mommy, no? I think if I remember it correctly, the Jewish joke goes like, mother says some of this, workplace, Oedipus, Oedipus, it doesn't matter just that you love me, no? or something like that, no? We Slovenes have, uh, it's not even funny, <coughs> an incredibly, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> an incredibly more vulgar version. It's brutal. It's, uh, son asks the mother, mommy, what is Oedipus complex? You know what the mother answers? Shut up and go on uh, fucking and so on. Like, <laughs> we, you know what I mean? Like, I like when you, nothing, that's the big lesson of my real socialism, like, experience. You can always go a little bit further, make it more, which is why, I'm sorry we don't have time to go into this, because, you know, here at this level, I change my position a little bit. For a long time, I tended to dismiss this dimension of obscene joke as not only not subversive, but as a, how should I put it, the ultimate support of power. What always fascinated me is how the discourse of power not only tolerated, but needed some kind of obscene supplement. We can go at this through all possible levels, for example, military community, you know, officially it's discipline, but every military community has its own obscene, sexualized, usually rituals or whatever. And far from, this is not a kind of a return of the repressed in the sense of it undermines power. No, it's really the ultimate support. It sustains power, no? But I think that there also is a way to mobilize this obscene dimension in a more emancipatory way, like my own experience, ex-Yugoslavia. If there was no racism, if things functioned more or less, more or less till early 80s, I claim quite seriously that one of the main, or main, one of important ingredients were dirty racist jokes. I almost wanted, it's okay, you risk a lot to write an article like a plea for more racist jokes and so on. I claim that, of course, they are as a rule racist, but there are situations where racist jokes can function not as a means of racist dismissal of the other, but on, on the opposite. It means of, of true contact. Like I exchange an obscenity with you, which means it's not just this cold, refined, pseudo tolerant racism. Oh, I like your culture, your food. Oh. I don't care about your culture. I want to hear your dirty joke. You know what I mean? Like, as a true solidarity. And this is how it functions in ex-Yugoslavia, how it functions. It was incredible how uh, each nation was identified by a certain racist cliché. But instead of fighting it, it was ironically fully assumed. And then we Slovenes were making joke at our own expense. Uh, and then when I meet 
a member of another Yugoslav nation, Montenegro, Serb, Bosnian, we were simply telling each other jokes about ourselves, mostly. It's a kind of an exchange of solidarity. For example, we Slovenes were supposed to be misers, no? Thrifty, never spend money, no? And we had a whole series of jokes about ourselves. Then Bosnians are supposed to be cunning, but in this primitive way, like sexually obsessed, primitive, like farmers. Montenegro are lazy, absolutely lazy. And they have wonderful jokes about themselves. Like, you, to understand this one, you also must know that uh, for Montenegro, uh, Montenegro is an earthquake territory, really, no? So how does a Montenegro guy masturbate? He digs a hole in the earth, put penis into it, and waits for the earthquake, because he's too lazy to, and so on, no? Bosnians, they are the most sublime, and the golden era of these jokes, Bosnian jokes, was precisely the war, jokes about them. That's how they survived. For example, all you have to know here, I warn you, this one is a little bit vulgar, although not too much, it's still political. It's, uh, you know Beethoven, and you know this, his extremely famous short piano piece, Für Elise, for Eliza. You know, it's hurt all our, no? Okay. It's not a good joke, but you will see the logic, so you don't have to laugh. Is that they even, what I like in this joke is that they make fun of this, you know, Western teachers who came there to enlighten them, made them all. So the joke is that at some high school, they have a new teacher from the West who said, no longer this traditional dreaming, a modern teacher, I will teach you in a creative way. So today it's Beethoven and We'll do it creatively, not simply learn by heart, but each of you should tell me one idea, image, person, whatever, and then name a Beethoven composition that fits it. So first a girl stands up and said, Bambi, forest, stream, beautiful animals, what is pastoral symphony, of course. Then a boy stands up, revolution, war, heroism, Napoleon, heroica, third symphony. Then comes our Bosnian guy and says, Warn you, sorry, now it's vulgarity, a prick, hard, like this, big. And then, uh, what? For whom is this? You got it. For Eliza and so on. I mean, it's so vulgar, you know. But, I mean, this was solidarity. It worked. And now we will give you a proof. <clears throat> when ethnic tensions really started, at the, in the beginning of 80s somewhere, these jokes disappeared. Only now they are slowly, slowly re-emerging. You see, so the lesson is that my God, you never know how should I put it. You know, on the one hand, of course one should be against racist jokes. All I claim is that, you know, there is a way to appropriate them, especially if you include yourself into them, where they can function in a very liberating way. And not only in a liberating way of this, how should I put it, to let the steam off manipulated by power. The reason I also like jokes is there are, for me, a wonderful example of this anonymous creativity of what Lacan calls the big other. What do I mean by this? Did you notice how jokes are, on the one hand, a moment of creativity? No? They are, by definition, the creative moment of language. But at the same time, somehow, you are not supposed to invent a joke. Jokes are, by definition, told. They are just here. It would sound strange, it would say, now I invented a good joke. It doesn't function. It's always, did you hear that joke? They must emerge from nowhere. Which is why my favorite paranoiac theory is, again, I think it's again Isaac Asimov, an old story by him, Jokester, where it's about a group of anthropologists 
who try to test the theory that the way God humanized us people is to tell us the first joke. Before we were just talking, speaking in this stupid animal language, stupid by stupid, I mean uh, denotative, like, you know, those bees who dance three times up and down and can signal you there is honey there and so on, but no, no, not spirit, probably, and that God told us a primordial joke, and then the story is that they try to reconstruct this primordial joke, as it were, no? I don't think he has a good verse, because I tend to agree this, and they didn't know what is this joke. The joke, the joke is, don't eat from the tree of knowledge, no? Which is obviously a joke, I claim, no? And so on, no? But, uh, so again, I'm sad that we don't have more time, because I think that the quality of political jokes is one of the few redeeming things for me of my old real socialist experience. There are Russian, there are, maybe you know, East Germans had incredible jokes. Sorry, I talked too much. There was another one, I think. Yes. Um, just on this theme, have you seen Borat? Uh, ah, this is a difficult question. You know why? Because uh, I cannot, I haven't yet seen it and I cannot decide, like, where to put it on this, my, between the two. I don't know. I haven't yet seen the film. That's the yeah, problem. But, but even, even like, yeah. I've seen Little Ollie G, or I, I guess just, or the idea of all is just that you, um, if you kind of portray, you create a social situation in which you're expected to be a certain way. Well, uh, okay. There are, all I can tell you is that there are arguments which speak for the film. There are, all I can tell you is that there are arguments which speak for the film. First, it's this obvious parallel with, you know, this long tradition in Europe, like from Montesquieu, letters from Persia, Persian letters, and so on, that in order to make fun of us, the best way is to adopt a totally fantasized foreign gaze. No? Just, uh, now the problem is, uh, I think that the Kazakhstan people, I mean, they should, you know, the Bosnian approach would be to, to, to proclaim him a honorary citizen of Kazakhstan, to proudly <laughs> assume, and that would be the best undermining of all possible racist implications. The worst thing you can do is to protest, no, we are not like that. My God, as if anyone was really thinking that they are like that. You know what I mean? By protesting, you confirm that you are like that, no? That's, that's, uh, that's again, but speaking about films, you know which film really interested me, but I'm opposed to it. Uh, but uh, did you see the revolutionary film, Joe? Did you see, and I think it's not, did you see, I hope most of you did, V for Vendetta? Yeah. I was deeply disappointed in the film. What did you have a multiple <laughs> orgasm? You shouted so no. <laughs> You know why? As a proper English theologist, Knowing Chesterton and so on, you know Chesterton, the man who was Thursday. I thought the film would make a certain step that it doesn't bear. Namely, you know the film, I will not go into it. Let me, let me draw your attention to a couple of moments which hint at the solidarity link between the opposed figures. V, the revolutionary, and Sattler, the dictator. A, in both cases, till the end, you don't see their real 
face. Wie is under the mask? Sattler only on the screen. Second point, you see Sattler only on the screen, but V is also presented as the one who knows perfectly how to manipulate screen, which is why he can do all those manipulations, give his magic through. Second point, the ruling party is called North Fire, this totalitarian party, and the only North Fire that you see in the film is when V died, that funeral on a subway. It's really like kind of a Viking funeral. So from this and some other indications, I can tell you what for me would have been the truly radical conclusion that uh, well, it should have been, there should have been no death scene, that one is false I think, this is too cheap, that scene when his second hand betrays V and shoots him as a part of the deal with, uh, not V, uh, that uh, second, kills Sattler as part of the deal with V, no it should have been like this, that at the end V is mortally wounded they took off his mask and it's subtler. They're the same. That would have been something. I thought, why? It's even justified at the level of uh, what goes on. Because it would be just a kind of extension of, of what happens to Evie. Okay, Natalie Portman, to use human terms. Because you, you remember that scene when he, V, imprisons her, beats her, and then when she's totally desperate and said, now I don't care if I die, then he shows himself, it was me, I was doing this, beating you in prison just to push you to freedom, to make you, no? But isn't, in a way, if you look the film in its totality, that North Party doing the same to the entire population, beating them and so on to make them protest, to make them explode in freedom. So that would have been something, I think. I thought it, the film would go to this, should go to this Hegelian identity of opposites, you know, that the two, oppo that Sattler is V, they are the same. What is beneath the mask is the face that you see there on the screen all the time. And I, I was, I thought this would be, people told me there is a big surprise at the end. What surprise? It's no, I, I really think that Hollywood is losing its imagination, like this Da Vinci Code, no? My God, what? What? I mean, every normal Christian knows that things are messy between uh, Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. I thought something politically correct would be to discover that Mary Magdalene was a boy or what. At least I expected <laughs> something along those lines. Although I must tell you something else. I cannot stop now that I, my God, this will be a deep confession. Uh, I... I will sound like Jimmy Swaggart now and so on, but I almost liked the film, not the novel. You know why? Forget about all this crap, uh, uh, Jesus, sex, and so on, and adopt a much simpler, totally different reading of the film. Uh, why does God have to have sex? I think the approach is the same as we should adopt. My good friend, British Lacanian analyst, Darian Leader, proposed this idea apropos of X-Files. Why do so many things go on out there? You know, all these aliens invading. To cover up the fact that nothing goes on here. No, no sex between Mulder and the two of them. And I think what if we approach it in the same way? The poor Christ has to have sex to cover up that she is freaky. That's between Sophie, did you notice? Between Sophie and Langdon, no sex. This is why they had to do it up there, no? So I think, what if we forget about divinity and Read the film as a kind of a wild, whatever we call it, psychoanalysis of 
a girl who is obviously frigid, traumatized because she witnessed what in psychoanalytic jargon we call the primordial scene. You went, she turns home basically parental copulation and so on. No? A trauma. And then what I moderately like is the dissolution of the film more than in the novel. The novel is more stupid. Is not this standard Hollywood solution, which would have been she should be restored to healthy sexuality. No, she remains frigid. It's just that what happens at the end is that she just acquires a symbolic space. You know, at the end, she is affirmed as the leader reference of that group of believers around her and so on. A social space is created for her where she can leave her, let's call it, desexualized identity or whatever. And it's a nice solution. I mean, I think it's absolutely authentic. I'm, I don't think that the proper lesson of analysis is uh, like, you know, the only, this stupid heterosexual male chauvinist. The only proper thing for a woman is to find a male partner. If not, she will be frigid, hysterical or whatever. I think that from a true psychoanalysis to find, to select an asexual role, a nun or whatever, okay, it can be pathological, but it can also very well be an authentic Position. So for me, what the film does is from the failed eros, love as eros, it passes to love as agape, which as Terry Eagleton put it nicely in one of his last books, it's basically political love. No? So again, one should be here uh, very, very precise, like when Lacan says woman is a symptom of man. This doesn't mean the usual male chauvinist wisdom, a oh, woman is nothing, just the reflection of man, man creates the woman. I mean, what Lacan means by symptom is something much more radical. Symptom is that what is in you more than you, like symptom is not your reflection, you depend on the symptom. Symptom, paradoxically for Lacan, pre-exists that of which it is a symptom. Symptom hinges on it. The best idea that I have Example of this woman as a symptom of men would be a wonderful anecdote somebody told me in Argentina of a local poet there who, okay, to cut a long story short, every five, ten years he changes his mistress, no? And his poetry changes accordingly. First, his mistress was a kind of a military dictatorship, right-wing supporter. He wrote nationalist, patriotic poetry. Then it was a Maoist guerrilla and then she wrote revolutionary poetry. Now it's a new ager. She writes about new age, you know, like, his poetry is determined, is determined by that. Or to put it in other terms, imagine woman as a symptom of man in a, and this is a nice metaphor. This means not, oh, you, a woman, are only a symptom, but it means you walk around, I'm a symptom. Does anybody want me? Whose symptom should I be? Do you want me as a symptom? Do you want me as a symptom? And even a nun would be then symptom at a zero level. This means, no, I want to be nobody's symptom. I want to be just a symptom, has to put it, no? So, again, along these lines, and so on and so on. I talk too much, okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, uh, the, uh, here I would have to make a step further. I think that uh, incidentally, 
as to subjects supposed to know. You know, this is a very complex notion. And speaking about Spielberg at the beginning, I think that in Munich, there is a wonderful, did you see Munich? There is a wonderful example of subjects supposed to know. And I mean, it's the most weird moment in the film. I love it. You remember after the Israeli agents get their task, no liquidate the... Israeli agents get their task, no liquidate the blah blah responsible for the Munich attack. What do they do? Do you remember? They go to some weird French clan family living somewhere in the countryside as a kind of a big family, children playing with pigs, chicken, whatever. But in a mysterious way, it's never explained how. They know everything, like, you know, who is, where are the terrorists. It's, this is subject supposed to know at its purest. Or another example that I like, maybe it works even better. You know that old series, Colombo. There are two nice things about it. The first one is that it undermines, falsifies the standard notion that the point of whodunit is whodunit. No, it's not whodunit. It's just to establish the link between the two levels, the surface appearance and what really... Because, you know, in Colombo, you first see clearly who done it. So, you know, that's not the mystery. The mystery is how will he connect it, Colombo. But now we come to subject supposed to know it is purest. D did you notice what is truly mysterious about Colombo? First, you see the murder. Then Colombo comes, and in a way which is never explained, he immediately knows who did it. There is one guy, and he then harasses that, you know, I go, oh, sorry, another question, and so on. But the mystery is this initial absolute knowledge. He absolutely knows from the beginning. But where I would uh, return to you is that I am more and more convinced that the category of subject supposed to believe in ideology is much more fundamental, radical, than subject supposed to know. Subject supposed to believe in the sense that I was developing before of this transposed belief, another can believe to me, and so on. For example, I told with, uh, I spoke recently in Germany with a psychiatrist whose specialty is slightly perverse is to analyze this, we call them in Europe swingers, this, you know, usually normal straight people who organize in these private orgies, group sex, and so on. And found how Far from being simply dissolute, oh, we can screw each other and so on, they all have another figure, somebody who has to remain innocent, who shouldn't know what they are doing. And if that one were to know, there will, it's usually either, oh my God, let's screw like crazy, three men can penetrate me, but my mother shouldn't know, but my son shouldn't know or what. And everything, falls apart if that, if that person knows. No? You know where, where you have this in a nice way? You know, I only know the film, I don't read this kind of pretentious novels. Edith Wharton, Age of Innocence. Winona Ryder is the naive one, but she, in order for Daniel Day-Lewis, Newland, to have his, okay, non-consummated affair, but nonetheless affair, that she is supposed to be innocent not to know. And you remember the very final scene when she is dead, his young wife, so he is now free to go and even marry uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, but then his son tells him, oh, mother knew it all the time, she just... And this ruins it for him. This is a nice example of the fall, but I'm not making fun here. Now, let me, to conclude, tell you a much more radical 
tragic even example. Agnes Heller is the lover pupil haha, of George Lukacs, French. She's somewhere between Australia and now. Uh, she told me this story. This was a Hungarian philosopher who emigrated to the West and during World War II, she was in a concentration camp. Like she has the number statute in really. And she told me a very interesting story how in her barrack and later she discovered, she was told in others also, there was always a rumor. What rumor? Basically people in the barracks, the majority were, let's call them survivalists. You did everything to survive. There were some minimal ethical rules, but it was a cruel universe. For example, you weren't allowed to beat the other guy. But if the other guy was stupid enough to turn around and left a piece of bread or shoes, you were allowed to steal very cruel universe. No honesty and so on. Then there was a minority of so-called Muslims and Muslims, those who simply broke down the living dead. But then, she told me, she told me that in almost every barrack there was a myth. A myth that in the barrack nearby or somewhere near, there is somebody who is still fully human, who is not just a survivalist, but helps other, you know, like retains this morality. And she told me the most dangerous moment was when, when you met people from the other barrack in some during work or whatever, when you discover that that's a myth, that the other is no better than you. She told me that was the most dangerous moment. At that point, usually people collapsed, regressed to Muslim men and to the living dead. But you see the paradox. The paradox is that to sustain your cruel survivalist amoral attitude, you need another one, as it were, to be moral for you. I think we shouldn't, and this is for me the key for today's cynicism and so on and so on. We are not as dishonest, as cruel, as egotistic as we appear to be. And I'm not even saying that this is good. This is neither good nor bad, but it's an interesting phenomenon. So at this level, for me, uh, ideology is fundamental. Ideology occurs with the symbolic order. What do I mean by this? Uh, like, for example, let's say I were to do something obscene here. I don't know. Rather not say, my imagination is too dirty. But then, if you were to create, you know, it's not enough for you to be in a proper symbolic universe to tell me, no, you shouldn't do this. We don't agree with it. No, you should to really be in the universe of norms. You should say, one doesn't do it here. You know, there must be a minimum of this normative alienation. It's not the same as most of us are, you know, like, you don't say you shouldn't steal because most of us don't steal. You should say because one shouldn't steal. And the whole point is that even if you steal, you secretly, you secretly refer to respect this. When this anonymity of the symbolic order falls down, you are in a psychosis or whatever, no? And again, for me, the crucial moment of ideology is precisely this, how should I call it, level of, this level of appearances. You know it's a lie, but it determines you. Like the example that I use, sorry to repeat it all the time. Let's say I know you, but not very well. We meet each other on the street. Of course, when we meet, I tell you, hi, nice to see you. How are you? Okay, you know what's the joke. We both know very well that I don't care. How are you? And nice to see you. Maybe, maybe not. 
But what's the catch? The catch is that although we both know it's a lie, it's nonetheless, I cannot put it otherwise, that it's nonetheless not a hypocrisy. It's a sincere lie. It is a lie. Because if you were to believe seriously that I mean it, how are you? You would be fully justified to say, fuck off. It's not none of your business how I am. It's a very intimate question. But you know what I mean? Although it's a lie, it's a sincere lie, it's a sincere order of appearances, even if untrue, can be, in what sense, sincere? Because the point of this is not the literal truth or not. You know, it's to signal community positive respect, positive attitude, whatever, at the more performative level. But what I'm saying is that a psychotic is precisely the one who takes this, and I know some of them, at least borderline cases, who takes this literally. You ask him, how are you? My God, paranoia. Why are you interested in this? Why do you want to know how I am and so on? No? Like, or I probably was a kind of a psychotic. I remember when I first visited the United States in the mid-80s, immediately after the flight, I went to New York with friends' cafeteria, and you know that I hate this, this pseudo-personification. Okay? Hi, my name is John. I will be serving you today. How are you? And so on. No? And I was an idiot. I didn't know it's a purely formal question. So I answered, so-so, it was a bad flight, many turbulences. And I noticed then, uh, a total moment look of panic in the guy. Like, <laughs> my God, why is this guy answering my question? <laughs> so again, I'm not losing the thread what, of your question. What I'm saying is that, that's my point. Today, today precisely in our so-called post-ideological era, ideology, racism, all these things, they survive precisely at this level. This level of this implicit rules, innuendos, uh, uh, unwritten rules, this level is the crucial one. This level is the most difficult to, to change. I think maybe at this level, battles are going on, which are much more crucial than big direct debates about issues. I succeeded in talking so long so that now I can say hypocritically, I'm so sorry you didn't have time to ask more questions. <laughs> That's my hypocrisy. Thank you.